Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. The one thing most anyone knows about First Lady Edith Wilson is that she conspired to cover for Woodrow Wilson after he suffered a debilitating stroke in 1919. There's much more to this complex woman's story, says this week's guest, Rebecca Boggs Roberts. She's the author of a new Edith Wilson biography titled Untold Power. She describes Edith Bowling's rise from rural Virginia with only two years of formal education to the heights of power in Washington in a time of change for women and for the nation. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Rebecca Boggs Roberts, your new biography of First Lady Edith Wilson is titled Untold Power. At the close, you write, her actions were clearly unconstitutional. Her official role as First Lady did not include the duties she took upon herself in 1919 and 1920. So what duties were unconstitutional? So I think if anyone knows one thing about Edith Wilson, they know that in 1919, when Woodrow Wilson suffered a massive stroke and was truly Incapacity. I mean, his life really hung in the balance for a good week, but even after he was out of mortal danger, he was a very, very sick man. And his doctors were telling him he couldn't face stress, he couldn't hear bad news, he couldn't get out of bed. And what his wife, Edith Wilson, decided to do at that point was do his job for him until he was better enough to do it himself and lie to everybody about it with his doctor, Carrie Grayson, and his chief of staff, Joe Tumulty, sort of closed ranks, Lied to the press, lied to the public, lied to the cabinet, the Congress, the vice president, the president himself. He never knew how sick he was. And so for months, at the end of 1919 and beginning of 1920, it was Edith who was deciding who saw him, who was almost no one. She was drafting public statements. She was making decisions on diplomatic issues. Um, She was looking over legislation. Once members of the cabinet started to resign, she was deciding who replaced them. She really did act as the nation's executive to the degree anybody was acting as the nation's executive for months, for really sort of a staggeringly long time. And no one elected Edith to anything. To be clear, constitutionally, the 25th Amendment didn't exist, right? That wasn't ratified till 1967. So what happened when the president was incapacitated? Who designated his incapacity? Whether the vice president became acting president or actual president, that was all very murky. But there was no scenario where the appropriate thing to do was have the first lady do it instead. Well, even if there weren't clear constitutional mandates, it was certainly unethical. Right, and, uh, and the lying part, the cover-up part. Yeah. What uh, motivated them? Well, in Edith's telling, and her source is her own memoir, which I, I must admit is delightful, right? It's funny, it's frank, it's also in places demonstrably untrue. So take her with a grain of salt. In her retelling, the doctors came to her and said, he can't face any situation that's gonna make him worse. He's a very sick man. You have to protect him. You have to keep him quiet and away from stress and in bed. So what does a president do all day, right? He faces stress and bad news and gets out of bed. So basically, if he does the things he's elected to do, he'll die. But if he steps down, he'll die because at this point, the only motivation for him getting any better is to see his dream of the League of Nations ratified. And so if you take that away from him, he'll die. So if he stays president, he'll die. If he resigns, he'll die. And OPS, if he dies, there'll never be world peace. So in Edith's mind, it was her only option. I think 
politically, there was this sense of let's keep him in the chair. The Democrats had lost both the House and Senate in the 1918 midterm, so they only held the presidency. Let's kind of prop him up, keep him there until the 1920 election, and um, think about you know the prospects for the party rather than admit to the tumult behind the scenes. So there were personal considerations. Edith said it was all about my husband first, the nation second. There were political considerations. Um, and there was a sense that I think they all fooled themselves into thinking that they were putting their priorities in the right place. You write of her, no one should be surprised. <clears throat> Retiring is not an attribute. So what attributes would you ascribe to her? Yeah, I mean, I think if you only look at that moment in time, you think, who, who was she to pull that off, right? Who was this country bumpkin who suddenly decided she could be the executive? But throughout her life, she showed that she was the kind of person who sort of barreled into a situation that she might not know exactly how to handle and handled it beautifully. So she was confident, she was smart, uh, she relied on her own opinions, she was funny, um, she was one of those people who put everyone at ease. Those are the positive attributes. Um, she was also uh, quick to hold a grudge. She was racist. She had a somewhat fickle regard for the truth. Um, and she was very invested in reputation management. So her own, she's an unreliable narrator of her own story. Um, but retiring shy country mouse, not Edith, not at all. As you suggested, this will always be the one thing that people know about her. <clears throat> Excuse my allergy-related Washington spring voice here. <laughs> uh, but always be the lead of her bio. But Edith Wilson did have some other firsts as first lady. What were they? So she married Woodrow Wilson when he was already in the White House. So think about that, right? I mean, the job of first lady is bananas anyway. And to not have any kind of an on-ramp to be a private citizen one day and the first lady the next. Um, and that was the end of 1915. And she... Uh, hesitated to marry him. She dragged her feet on marrying him. And so she really kind of had to wait until she was ready to be all in for that role. Um, and so she didn't give any interviews. She didn't champion any causes. Her position as first lady was Mrs. Woodrow Wilson. In fact, she preferred to be called Mrs. Woodrow Wilson than the first lady. And so throughout 1916, which was an election year, um, it didn't really look like she was going to evolve that office in any way. You know, she, she was pretty good at campaigning and she showed up where she needed to show up and she made everyone feel good about it. But it really wasn't until 1917 when the US joined World War I. Because being a wartime first lady is a whole other thing, right? And it turned out that Edith was very good at the public example part of the role. She quickly adapted all the conservation stuff and had the card in the White House window that they were doing Wheatless Wednesdays and Meatless Mondays. Uh, she had sheep grazing the White House lawn to free up the landscapers for war work. She volunteered at a Red Cross canteen. So she did all of that uh, kind of collective responsibility lead by example stuff that we look to a first lady to do. And then once the war ended and um, Woodrow Wilson insisted on going to Paris in person to be part of the peace treaty negotiations, she went with him. And that was totally unprecedented. It, it was rare for a president to go abroad. It was totally unprecedented for a first lady to go abroad. And they were gone for the better part of six months. And so in some ways, just kind of by showing up, she elevated the office, right? Because there she was in Paris. She was 
with him on every dais. She was on the front page of every newspaper. She's standing next to royalty. She's staying at Buckingham Palace, you know, accepting keys to cities. She's just doing this very high level international ceremonial role that now we expect of first ladies, but she really was the first. Um, and because she then uh, sort of became beloved as that figure, he trotted her out for a lot more things. So she became the first first lady to stand next to her husband when he took the oath of office. Um, she was the first first lady to publish a memoir. Um, but I think the bigger legacy is this notion that we now expect public diplomacy to be part of the first lady's portfolio, and it just hadn't been before Edith. What were those years when she served as First Lady generally like for women in this country? I mean, it was changing in real time. Mm. I think that's one of the things that made her job so tricky. It's, it's a tricky job under the best of circumstances, um, and especially that part of it that I think we sort of expect our First Ladies to reflect ideal American womanhood in some ways. But ideal American womanhood was, was a moving target from 1915 to 1921, right? I mean, suffrage was happening, prohibition was happening, huge amount of labor unrest. There were all these changing roles for women because of World War I. And so the, the line between the domestic sphere and the public sphere was blurring, even as she was trying to balance exactly what she was gonna do. Your last book, first book, was on suffragists. She was not one, correct? No, she was not, which kills me. Why wasn't independent, business-owning, car-driving, in many ways trailblazing, Edith Bowling Galt Wilson interested in exercising her full you know, rights as a citizen. Um, she never said why. As best I can tell, uh, there was just part of her that thought it was a little inappropriate, a little unfeminine. Um, there were plenty of anti-suffrage women and their argument, which you hear echoed in the anti-ERA arguments a generation later, was sort of that, you know, women own the domestic sphere, they raise the families, they run the households, that's vitally important. Um, they can maintain a certain amount of moral high ground by confining themselves to that sphere. And by wanting to muck around in that dirty public sphere, the, the sphere of men um, is denigrating the importance of the private role. And so I think there was just part of Edith that thought it was a little not nice. Uh, I will say she voted as soon as she had the right. Uh, she couldn't vote for president because she was a resident of the Washington DC before um, the amendment that changed our voting rights, but she did she did use it once she had it. But she was anti, which is so interesting, especially because there's, there's this narrative out there since Woodrow Wilson dragged his feet on the 19th Amendment and really didn't come around till about 1918, that maybe it was her whispering in his ear, you know, that maybe she had changed his mind. It's totally not true. He changed his mind for <laughs> reasons of electoral math, but um, it's there seems to be an idea out there that maybe she was the one who pushed him towards suffrage. Sadly, no. Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of the story. In your prologue, you write of a, of a scene that happened at the White House in December of 1919 with a congressional delegation coming to see what the real state is with Woodrow Wilson. Could you just tell me that story? I mean, it's a, it's a crazy scene, right? It's, um, so this is December of 1919, two months after the president's stroke. No one's met with him. In two months, his own cabinet hasn't seen him. And uh, for the most part, the members of his cabinet were on Team Wilson, right? They wanted to maintain this fiction that he was running the country, so they didn't ask a lot of questions. 
But as Secretary of State Robert Lansing, who was never a great fit for that administration and had actually threatened to resign before the stroke, um, was very frustrated by it. And there was a tense situation in Mexico that's too tedious to go into, but it resulted in Robert Lansing testifying to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that he hadn't seen the president. And that led the Republicans on the committee to immediately say, well, let's let's go check it out. Let's go to the White House and eyeball the president and see why he's not meeting with everybody. And they pretended it was about this Mexican situation, but everyone knew it was a chance to really assess. And um, Edith Wilson and Dr. Kerry Grayson and Joe Tumulty, the chief of staff, they, they had to say yes. They couldn't at that point flinch. And so they set up this nuts scene where they basically propped the president up in bed. They took a blanket and put it over his whole left side because his whole left side was paralyzed. Um, they lit the chairs for the senators brightly but kept the bed in shadow so that the senators couldn't see much. And they placed a report on the Mexican situation right by the president's good right hand and gave him a shave and sort of tucked in his covers and hoped for the best. And it really could have gone either way. As it happened, um, the senators came in and Albert Fall, the senator from New Mexico, who was really hoping to catch the president, you know, drooling or incoherent, um, says, I've been praying for you, Mr. President. And he says, which way, Senator? <laughs> and everyone sort of breathes a sigh of relief that he's gonna be lucid and it's gonna be okay. And this completely staged scene, they managed to pull it off uh, for the you know half hour they need to, to the point where Senator Fall is forced to go out to the entire Washington press corps, which was waiting on the White House lawn, and say he's fine, he's actually okay, when he 100% was not. Really unbelievable how they pulled this off. <laughs> right. And it, you, it makes you wonder, I mean, I don't want to play a lot of what ifs with history, but like, suppose he had listed over during that meeting, which he absolutely could have, they had to prop him. Um, suppose he had forgotten a name or lost the thread of the conversation, which he did all the time. Um, but instead, that moment worked and it, it put off more critical questions and a little bit tougher scrutiny for at least a couple more months. Obviously, what Edith Wilson did in 1919-1920 could not happen today. So much has changed, including the Constitution. Why were you interested in telling her story in 2023? I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. I, um, I think her story has been told just in this very sliver of life, and I wanted to understand her better. And once I started learning more about her, she's fascinating. I mean, she was born in 1872, so she lived through this time of huge change in America and huge time of change here in Washington, D.C. She lived here in town before she married the president. And so Washington, D.C. is a little bit of a minor character in the story. I'm a native. I like those things. Um, and I think that this notion in 2023, we're doing a lot of rethinking the Hall of Fame model of history, right? We're putting context around people who may have had some heroic acts and some less heroic acts. We're revising our opinion of people like Woodrow Wilson. Um, and we're starting to think through sort of what it means to make history, that it's not always the person who runs the government or leads the battle or leads the corporation. Um, that social change comes from a lot of different places. And for so long, women couldn't hold those positions. But it's not like women weren't affecting social change. They were just doing it in these very different ways. And I think that Edith's story is so instructive because not only was she 
making history in ways that the Hall of Fame model doesn't cover, but she was covering her own tracks, right? She was putting up her own smoke and mirrors to pretend she wasn't doing what she was doing. And I just latched on to that as an idea of um, how to rethink what it means to actually make history in this country and the different ways that you can approach it. So on your website, your biography reads, award-winning writer and educator, Previous jobs include journalist, tour guide, forensic anthropologist, <laughs> political consultant, jazz singer, uh, and radio talk show, talk show host. That's a pretty eclectic list. <laughs> Is there a common thread? Storytelling, I think, has to be the common thread. I mean, even the forensic anthropology, what you're doing when you study skeletons is figuring out who that person is and what their story was. So I, I love words and language. Um, I love being able to tell stories in whatever format it's in, whether it's singing a song or leading a tour or writing a book. Um, I work in programs in education and cultural institutions right now at the, at the Library of Congress, and the chance to sort of um, explore people who came before us and, and make connections to contemporary uh, life and spread those stories far and wide. That's really, I'd say, the common thread. It does make me seem sort of like a dilettante, though, to read that through, doesn't it? <laughs> well, your lineage in Washington is one we should also tell people about, because your parents, longtime D.C. journalists, Steve and the late Cokie Roberts. Uh, your mom, in particular, in addition to her journalism, wrote several books of women's history. Do you think she inspired you on these two books that you've written? Oh, 100%. Um, she died before I started the Edith book, but I heard her voice in my head all the time. And uh, one of the things that I learned from mom, I mean, not the things I learned from my mom are <laughs> legion, but as a historian and as a writer of women's history, one of the things she always said was how valuable personal letters were as a source because the men, and she wrote a lot about the early republic when the men were very self-conscious about the fact that they were making history. And so they, they wrote these letters as if, as mom would say, they were already you know marble statues. They were very stiff. They were very formal. They knew everyone would read these letters. Whereas the women wrote letters um, that were just as full of content about what contemporary life was like, but not curated for a public audience. So they talked about how people were stinky and they talked about, you know, the gossip of the day and they talked about how frustrating it was that the roads weren't paved in Washington. And so uh, you got not only a context of what life was like from women's letters, but it punctured the pomposity of the men all the time, right? Because they were writing for each other. And uh, boy, did that hold true with Edith and Woodrow Wilson because their love letters survive. And the whole time I was reading their letters and trying to sort of understand them better through these first-person narratives that they left, I kept hearing mom's voice in my head, uh, you know, reminding me that personal letters are such a, such a rich source. Well, back to Edith, her full name, Edith Bowling Galt Wilson. So let's start with the Edith Bowling. She was born in the 1870s, but pretty really humble circumstances. What was her upbringing like? So born in 1872 in Withville, Virginia. Withville is in the southwest corner of Virginia, um, and her family lived in this funny little warren of rooms above three storefronts on Main Street in Withville. And they still exist. There's a little museum uh, to Edith's birthplace. You can go see it. Um, but like, not all the rooms connect with each other, and it's just one story because it's storefronts on the ground floor and a false gable on the third floor. And there were nine kids, and the parents, and two grandmas, and an aunt, and a cousin, and various you know house guests who would overstay their welcome. So they were packed in there, 
And that was not, you know, the ancestral home. The family, the Bowlings, who could actually trace their ancestry back to Pocahontas, and were quite proud of that. In fact, Edith details the nine-generation descent in her memoir. Um, they had been tobacco planters in the James River Valley. They were enslavers. And when the Civil War came through and they were not able to maintain that lifestyle, they moved to Withville, Virginia. Um, and so Edith was very much raised, you know, a child of the Reconstruction era with these lost cause stories that they had had this very gracious antebellum lifestyle before the Yankees took it all away. Um, and she was the sixth of the nine kids. So easily could have gotten lost in that shuffle, um, especially as a girl. One of her grandmothers, her father's mother, Mrs. Bowling, uh, kind of picked her out from the pack and told her she was special. And Mrs. Bowling was by all accounts sort of terrifying, but she, she chose Edith as a favorite for reasons known only to her and told her that she was smart and she was fierce and she could trust her own opinions and she could rely on her own confidence. And that was not a message a lot of girls were getting in the South in the 1870s. And in fact, Edith wasn't getting it from her other grandmother who also lived with them or her mother. Um, on that side of the family, they were getting the message, all the girls were, of that sort of Victorian uh, ideal womanhood that a, a woman is pious and submissive and domestic and pure. Um, and you know, I don't want to do a huge amount of psychoanalysis of Edith Wilson 150 years after her birth, but I think those competing grandmas actually explain a lot about her, that she naturally was more inclined to the fierce, self-confident lesson, but was being taught that she had to cloak it in these notions of pure womanhood. So she spent a lot of time pretending she wasn't fierce and independent when she actually was. Our Q&A conversation will be right back after this short break. Earlier, you called her a racist. Uh, how did that play itself out in her life? So in her memoir, she talks about how the slaves her family um, had were happy, that they didn't know what to do with freedom, that they, you know, so there's this recasting of the institution in, as a beneficial one for those who were enslaved, which is on its face racist. Um, she was not above a darky joke, neither was Wilson. Um, which are basically the punchline is how ignorant black people are, right? Um, Wilson's, Woodrow Wilson's legacy, you know, has, has very much been revised lately to understand his resegregation of the civil service and he screened Birth of a Nation in the White House and that all happened before he met her, but their attitudes were not dissimilar. Um, and there's just sort of a casual bigotry uh, threaded through her memoir. She, it, it, she didn't publish it till 1939 after his death. Um, but it's still, um, it, I don't want to take contemporary standards and Im impress them on a historical figure, but even within her own time, they are not progressive, right? How much education did she have? <laughs> Hard to know. I mean, so the grandmother who picked her out uh, did teach her at home and um, even taught her kind of a homemade French. Uh, in terms of formal schooling, only two years. She went to a boarding school at 15, hated it, came home, went to a second boarding school in Richmond, and actually loved that one. But the school was closed down because the headmaster got hit by a streetcar. Um, and by the time it was sort of the next school year and what do we do with Edith, 
um, she had three younger brothers, and they needed to use the budget to educate the boys. So by 18, she was done with school. Somehow she made it from those circumstances to Washington, D.C. and lived a pretty good life. How did she do that? Yeah, I mean, this is what I mean when I say she was fierce and confident and really made her own way in a world that was not built for her. Um, so she came here to Washington at age 18. She had an older sister who had married a D.C. local and they were living in Foggy Bottom and they had a baby and sort of the excuse was we needed help with the baby. But there was not much else for Edith to do. She was 18 and she just loved it here. And 1890s Washington was, was booming. It was the Gilded Age. There was all this money pouring in as, as the city was really trying to kind of make a name for itself as a real global capital. And so she went to the theater every night and she discovered she was quite stylish and attractive. And um, she just sort of found herself a uh, city mouse, you know, in a way that she couldn't have necessarily imagined in the little house in Withville. And she just took to it. She never had any money, but she um, took to the sort of glamour and speed and sophistication of Gilded Age Washington. And she kind of needed to figure out a way to stay and ultimately married a man named Norman Galt. Um, he seems like a perfectly nice guy, maybe a little stuffy, maybe a little fussy. Um, he was significantly older than she was, and he owned Galt's Jewelers, which was here in Washington until about 20 years ago, sort of the... It was a big name. Yeah, color. right. It was mm -hmm. kind of Tiffany's here in town. Mm -hmm. It was the big silver and jewelry store. And so he was, because he ran a high-end business, and he was this total solid citizen. He was on all the right boards and the vestry of his church. And uh, she dismisses him in about a page and a half in her memoir. <laughs> but uh, they were married for 12 years, and he gave her stature and financial security and the ability to stay here in town. And uh, they had one baby who didn't survive. And... So they were this, um, you know, well-respected couple of means. They had a elegant townhouse in Dupont Circle, and uh, then when he died in 1908, he left the business to her. So she became a business owner, which again, 1908 for a woman, unusual. Had his father been alive, or his brother not been an invalid, had there been some man to contest that, it might have gone a different way. But she chose to keep the business um, and. She became this kind of wealthy widow about town. You know, she had uh, money. She had control over her own money. She didn't need a chaperone because she was a widow, and she was really good at that role. You know, she she went to Europe every year. She had beautiful gowns. She became the first woman in Washington to have a driver's license and a car and a right? this little electric car. <laughs> she zipped around town in this funny little electric car and became sort of known for that. Other um, memoirs of the time, especially by society hostesses like um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth talk about Mrs. Galt in her electric car. And that is who the president fell in love with, that woman, this sophisticated, beautifully dressed, world-traveling, independent widow of means. Um, and it was a role she really cherished. It's one of the reasons she dragged her feet on marrying Wilson, is that that was a lot to give up. So Woodrow Wilson was elected in 1912 in a landslide. Ellen <clears throat> died how soon after? 1914. And. What kind of widower was Woodrow Wilson? He was a mess. I mean, he was, even though he won in a landslide, he was a little bit of an accidental president because in the 1912 election, Teddy Roosevelt decided to run as a third party, split the Republican vote. Um, and, you know, Wilson had held elected office for a minute and a half. He had been president of Princeton College, um, 
ran for governor of New Jersey in 1910, took office in 1911, ran for president in 1912. Um, and so when he came to Washington in 1913, it just was not his natural habitat. Uh, nor Ellen's neither. Ellen was a educated, sophisticated woman. She uh, was an accomplished painter, but she was shy and the gossip columns talked about how dowdy she was and how poorly dressed she was and it just, it was not a good fit for her whatsoever. And there were three adult daughters um, who came to Washington with them, but by 1914 when Ellen died, two of them had married and moved out. And the third was trying to be a singer, so she was embarking on this tour. So he was kind of rattling around the White House alone, and he was uh, absolutely devastated by his wife's death, and he was not good at being alone. And he was depressed, and his doctor was worried about him, and his doctor was Carrie Grayson, and Carrie Grayson was a friend of Edith's. And so Grayson went to Edith and said, I want you to make friends with Helen Bones. Helen Bones was Woodrow Wilson's cousin, and she had been brought in as a social secretary, and to the degree that there was any first ladying going on in the wake of Ellen's death, Helen was doing it. But she was depressed and mourning too, right? And so Grayson said, go, go be nice, go be nice to Helen. And Edith said, no. <laughs> she said, like, that's not my scene. I'm not part of federal Washington. I don't want any part of official Washington. And um, the doctor said, you don't need to be part of official Washington. The White House is in, in mourning. They're not holding any events, just go be a friend. So Edith did, and she and Helen kind of hit it off. And they'd go for long walks in Rock Creek Park, and then they'd go back to Edith's house on DuPont Circle for tea. And one day, Helen kind of weirdly insisted that they go to the White House for tea instead. And uh, Edith said, you know, my boots are really muddy, and I don't want to go to the White House. And Helen said, nope, it's important. You always are, play the host. I'm always the guest. I want to be the host sometimes. Come to the White House. You won't see anyone. No one's there. We'll take the elevator to the private quarters. It'll be fine. This is March of 1915. So they go to the White House. They go up in the elevator. And it's a total setup, right? The door's open, and there's the president and Carrie Grayson just off the golf course. And they all have tea together. Um, as far as I can tell, the president was a goner from the moment those elevator doors opened. I mean, he was absolutely smitten. She, she took a little while longer. <laughs> It actually, the way you describe it, it, it seems almost obsessive how interested he became. Yes, yes. I mean, and as you mentioned, I've written about the suffrage movement. I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> you know, he he comes across as this intellectually superior, cold prig, right? He's he cultivated this image of himself as being above any sort of human frailty and, and morally superior in so many ways. And um, his love letters are, woo, I mean, racy. <laughs> and it, they almost made me like him because he just lays himself out there from the very beginning with, with no hope of her returning his feelings. And he's just ardent. Uh, still totally humorless. Let's, I mean, <laughs> let's not go too far. But he just, his love letters are fervent from the very beginning. And um, she keeps him at arm's length. I mean, her letters back, which are funny and frank and um, kind of gossipy, uh, she is not returning the level of love letter that he started with. How soon after he became smitten did he begin sharing his official work as president? Well, it took him a little while to 
realized that that's what she wanted. So they met in March of 1915. He first proposed to her like five weeks later. She said no, she felt like they didn't know each other that well. And the very next day, he wrote her a letter talking about how his heart breathed for her and, you know, um, and she wrote him a letter that said, you know, I want to go back to something we were talking about last night. Do you think William Jennings Bryan is going to resign? <laughs> if so, who do you think is going to take over as Secretary of State? Maybe you should appoint me. What? 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 Like, women can't vote. She's never been political. She made it clear in her letters that she really wanted to know what was going on with his work. And so he'd write about how he wanted to kiss her eyelids and she'd write about, you know, I thought your last letter back to the Germans about sinking the Lusitania was not your best work. And um, he finally caught on. So by sort of early summer of 1915, he started, he didn't stop with the kiss your eyelids stuff, but he started accompanying the letters with these big packets of legislation and diplomatic correspondence. And um, he taught her his cipher so that she could decode letters from his overseas advisors. And he it wasn't a patronizing, like, oh, study up, little girl. Like, he really, truly valued her opinion. And um, he was not a man who had a big stable of advisors. He really just relied on a couple. And she quickly became first among those. And I think that is ultimately what won her over. I mean, imagine being in that position. Here's this woman who's probably been told she's beautiful every day of her life, and I don't know how often she was told she was smart. And here's this famous intellectual, the President of the United States, saying that he values her opinion and trusts her judgment. And I think that is what ultimately won her over. It was interesting in the context of all this discussion about secret papers being shared, uh, how he was very open with all kinds totally. of wartime cables and as what right. time went along. Yeah. Yeah. Security issues be damned. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's just messaging these packets of primary sources over to her townhouse on DuPont Circle. Amazing. So uh, they got married. How soon after they met? Uh, so they met in March, married in December. What was the public reaction? There was some worry about that. Uh, and in fact, she initially told him she'd only marry him if he lost re-election. <laughs> she was fine with him, but she didn't want the, the White House. Um, and even though the 19th Amendment hadn't been ratified, more and more states were enfranchising women, and especially in the West, or almost exclusively in the West. And that was seen as a key area for Wilson's re-election in 1916. And there was some concern that these new women voters would hold it against him that he had moved on from Ellen so quickly. And um, even Edith sort of wanted to postpone their marriage or at least the announcement of their engagement because she worried about the optics of um, how recently Ellen had died. It turned out she needn't have worried. Um, she was immediately embraced by the press. They loved that she seemed to humanize him. Uh, they loved that maybe this meant the White House would be social again. Uh, because not only had it been, you know, a period of mourning for the White House, even before that, because Ellen Wilson was not a great hostess, it had been pretty austere over there for a while. So um, people thought maybe this signals that the White House is back as a social center um, because Mrs. Galt is, uh, you know, a local and a known hostess and a woman of gracious manners. So it was actually, she was, she was well received. She never gave interviews. And she was never out front in any way. Um, but throughout the 1916 campaign, she was in all the pictures. She shook all the right hands. She made the host feel good. You know, she was good at that side of things. So reelected in 1916. And 
as a, the year unfolded into 1917, war in Europe beginning to rage. Woodrow Wilson was elected on, he kept us out of war. Yeah. So what, what were things, what was happening behind the scenes at the White House between the two of them as the war was really beginning to be uh, something the United States needed to pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, that's to me a fascinating time in American history. Uh, Wilson was barely reelected. He had to wait a week to know. Um, and he was never confident about that we kept us out of war slogan because he knew he couldn't keep that promise. Uh, but the Democratic Party operatives knew it was a winner and they spread it around. Um, he, it, it was not, foreign policy was not where he was most comfortable. He really had hoped to bring a progressive domestic agenda to the White House. And he'd been a university president. This wasn't his wheelhouse and certainly not war. Um, he, he said from the beginning, I wanted a constructive, not a destructive administration. Uh, but when he squeaked in again in 1916, he, he knew that that's what he was gonna be facing. And all of this other social upheaval as well, right? I mean, all of the different movements and changes and, and social um, uh, affects that were going on in the, in the second decade of the 20th century. So I think, you know, he, he saw that war was gonna happen. He knew that from his point of view, the whole reason for the US to get involved, because we didn't obviously have any territory at stake, was so that he could have, a, he personally could have a seat at the table to dictate the peace. That was what he was all about. He wanted this vision he had of the League of Nations to become a reality. And so that, that's kind of hard to sell to the American public, right? I mean, you're sending American soldiers overseas to die because your president wants a seat at the peace table. Um, so there was a lot of effort in 1917 and 1918 to try to sell the war to the American public. Um, and it only exacerbated all these social upheavals, right? Like suddenly women were in the workplace and uh, labor unions started to have a lot of power and um, a lot of, there was a lot more racial mixing than there had been before the war. Um, so I, I don't think Wilson anticipated all of those social side effects of the war, but he was pretty clear eyed and pretty far sighted, I think, about how the war was gonna go. Our Q&A conversation will be right back after this short break. At this point, you have Edith Wilson accompanying him to cabinet meetings mm -hmm. and helping him conduct secret preparations for the war. And you said earlier that she was his closest advisor. So here we have a woman with very limited education uh -huh. uh, at serving as the, not only a sounding board, but probably helping him devise policy. So And, and supplanting his other advisors. And what did, how did the cabinet react to all this? I mean, I don't know how much they knew. I, I think... I think almost every president has relied on his wife as a sounding board, right? As we all do with our spouses all the time, right? I mean, how many times do you come home from work and say, wow, I had a terrible day. What do you think of this? So I don't think that private sounding board part was controversial. Um, and if people were snotty about her lack of formal education, they knew enough not to say it to him. But having a first lady in cabinet meetings right. at this point? And, and undermining the other advisors. That's mm. where I think it's sort of amazing that she, she really didn't like uh, Edward House, Colonel House, who, who didn't have an official job in the administration but was a very close advisor. And he chose her over him. Wilson 
started to trust her judgment over his. And she wasn't crazy about Joe Tumulty either. Uh, and that whole process is sort of amazing to watch from a hundred years distance. I, I didn't find anything where at that stage people were concerned that she was inserting herself in some inappropriate way. Um, but again, if you're surprised by what happened in 1919, you weren't paying attention to 1917. Sounds like every advisor except for herself, she found fault. Yes, <clears throat> yes. And maybe that's just jealousy, mm -hmm. you know, um, and the insecurity of knowing that there were people who had more knowledge than she did. Um, he was free to not share her opinion of those people, but he did. Gonna fast forward to the uh, end of the war. So armistice is declared, and this was an astounding statistic to me. One month later, Woodrow Wilson took a delegation of 1,600 people <laughs> to France, five railroad cars of documents to negotiate the peace. And who was left mining the store back here? Uh, almost no one. Um, so that decision was controversial at the time, that he would go in person. Um, there was a sense, first of all, they were going to be gone for the better part of six months as it happened, uh, which in an era before global te telecommunications, your president's just gone. Uh, but also there was a sense that he could maintain the moral high ground if he stayed here in Washington, left the dirty work. And it is mucky to negotiate a treaty. You make compromises. That's what you have to do. If he left that to his advisors and he stayed sort of on his throne of righteousness, um, maybe that was a better place for him, but he was always gonna go. That was the reason he justified U.S. involvement in the war. Were the other people around the table also heads of state? Yes, um, and they also had plenty of advisors. That 1,600 people, nine train cars or whatever it is, is was a little bit for show, right? To kind of underscore the power of America and then what was gonna become the American century. Um, and also, you know, it's not like you could search for a map on your phone, right? So you had to bring all the stuff. Uh, but he cultivated this um, role for himself that he was kind of the moral authority of those treaty negotiations. And because he cultivated that role for himself, people have criticized him in retrospect for for maybe not keeping the British and the French from their own worst instincts to be punitive to Germany, and maybe he could have done more to prevent what ultimately became World War II. Um, but, so it, it was not without controversy at the time. It was also exhausting. And so many competing interests, not just with the treaty negotiations, but all the ceremony around it, you know, all the dinners and all of the tours of battlefields and hospitals. and. It was 1918, there was a flu epidemic. He got quite sick in Paris. And uh, he was always, he was never the healthiest guy to begin with. And Edith um, played a big role in sort of saving him from his own worst instincts, making him take walks, making him play golf, making him eat healthy. And she really couldn't exert that much control in Paris. And so he, uh, he became quite sick and, um, the stakes were very, very high. Uh, when ultimately, you know, his his big goal was to make sure the League of Nations was included in the treaty, and the night that they were going to vote on it, um, Edith wanted to see 
because it was this moment where she knew everything her husband had riding on this moment. Are we in Paris still? We're in Paris. And so this is the delegates to the treaty uh, deciding whether or not the League of Nations is going to make it through to the final version. And she wasn't allowed in the hall. Uh, She wasn't part of the official team. So she asked um, the French delegation if she could possibly peek, peek in. And they told her that she could if she hid behind a curtain, got there before all the delegates came, stayed behind the curtain, um, and then once they left, she left. So she actually was there for the moment. The League of Nations was included in the treaty, but she was sort of peeping out from behind a big velvet curtain. Next challenge is selling it back home. And he drew a line in the sand that he wanted just up or down without any amendments? Yeah, he did. So uh, as I mentioned, the. Republicans had taken control of the Senate in the 1918 midterms, and there were some, Senate has to ratify treaties, uh, there were some senators who were just never going to give him that win. They called themselves the irreconcilables. They were never going to vote for the treaty in any form. Uh, But there were some who saw room for compromise, particularly around this issue of the League of Nations, because as an international security pact, the Senate worried that the power to declare war was being taken from the Congress. That if the U.S. was obligated to go to war for their allies, that that power was being removed from congressional hands. And so they wanted some process included that would recognize Congress in that. And Wilson, he just dug in his heels. He said, up or down, no compromises. I will not meet you halfway. I will not meet you a tenth of the way. I negotiated this treaty. Uh, I had partners in this negotiation. We cannot reopen negotiations. It's got to be yes or no. And he fought that fight all through the summer of 1919 and really getting nowhere. If you've refused to compromise, uh, then you're at an impasse almost before you begin. So he had the idea to take a train trip across the country to sell Such it. Such a terrible idea. And he had already was had been sick, exhausted, and you wrote that he was already exhibiting some strange behaviors while he was still in Paris. Why did he think this was a good idea, and what, did, what was the train trip all about? The train trip was, in theory, to sell the idea of the League of Nations to the American people, that if he talked to them directly and proved the righteousness of this idea, that they would then pressure their elected officials to support the treaty. Putting a sick, exhausted man on a 100-degree metal train car and trucking him around the country where he's giving dozens of speeches a day and shaking hundreds of hands is a total recipe for disaster. Everyone knew it was a recipe for disaster. And Edith and Carrie Grayson and Joe Tumulty all said to him, this might literally kill you. And he thought the idea of being a martyr to the cause of the League of Nations was actually sort of wonderful. So they couldn't talk him out of it the best they could do was go with him and try to keep him from being totally self-destructive. And it was just as awful as they feared. He, he got really sick, uh, only a few stops in, he started having these headaches that left him literally blind when he was having them. And um, there was no, the pace was just relentless. There was no moment when he could rest. Even when the train was moving from stop to stop, Inevitably, some local politician would say, I'll ride with you. There's something I want to ask you about, right? And so he just had absolutely no chance to recover his health, and it got worse and worse. And finally, sort of, so the train swung all the way west down California, was heading back east, 
and outside of Pueblo, Colorado, he collapsed on the train. Um, and Edith and Carrie Grayson and Judge Tumulty had to convince him, you can't, you can't go on. Um, and they canceled the rest of the train tour and came steaming back here to Washington. We have 10 minutes left, and, and so they sped back to Washington, but then there was a big event in the White House. Uh, what happened to him there? So about a week later, he did suffer this massive stroke, and um, that was just a much more acute moment in his health. He, um, his, his life really was in danger, and that was the left side, paralyzed, and he, his speech was slurred, he would find it hard to follow the conversation, and that's when Edith ultimately stepped in. How many months of his second term did he spend incapacitated? Hard to know, because everyone who knew was lying about it. He was not seen in public at all from early October 1919 until May of 1920. And even then, they sort of propped him up in a car and drove him around town. He, he improved throughout the summer of 1920, but he never got all the way better. And when uh, Warren Harding was elected in 1920 and sort of the end was in sight, everyone kind of stopped pretending and started calling him an invalid and talking about how improvement was never going to happen. Was there legislation passed during this time period? Sure. And uh, did, I mean, it was did, months. Did he sign it? Maybe. Maybe Edith signed it. I mean, uh, there were things like the Volstead Act, right? The law that enforced prohibition. Woodrow Wilson vetoed the Volstead Act. Or Edith. Or maybe Edith <laughs> right. vetoed the Volstead Act. The veto was overridden in like a minute. Um, would he have done that? Was that her? I. I don't think she did anything differently than he would have done. She was not seizing power for her own agenda, and she knew his mind quite well. She had supplanted all of his advisors. I think the bigger effect is that she kept him in the dark about how sick he was. She told him he was improving. She told him that the nation was still behind him and absolutely in favor of the League of Nations. And so he had terrible judgment because he was living in this echo chamber. So even if she was consulting him about every decision she made, and it's pretty clear she was not, his judgment wasn't to be trusted because he didn't know, because she wasn't telling him. Was the press aware of her role? Yes-ish. Um, by the spring of 1920, there started to be more stories about, uh, it seems that Mrs. Wilson is the acting president. Interestingly, not all critical. Some of them said, can you imagine having such a dutiful wife? Isn't she just the most wonderful woman you can see? After they left office, where did they live? They stayed here in town. They bought a house in the Calorama neighborhood on S Street. It is now the Woodrow Wilson Museum. And he didn't live very long after. So they left office in 1921. He died in 1924. She lived till 1961. So she was there in that S Street house for another 37 years. There were no presidential pensions. So how did they finance, and how did she finance that long life? Yeah, I mean, um, there was a, a dicey moment when they were deciding where they would live after the White House, because she had sold her DuPont Circle house. He didn't have a house. She had sold Galt's Jewelers by that point. And happily, uh, he retroactively won the 1919 Nobel Peace Prize in 1920, and that came with a pretty sizable prize chunk, and that was the down payment on their house. But um, they had some investments and they had, you know, the, the help and support of friends. Um, and then she also made a fair amount of money. Um, there was a big Hollywood blockbuster movie called Wilson. 
and she was uh, signed on as a consultant for that. So during the time they were together in the White House of taking care of him was her full-time job. You described that after he died, burnishing his legacy became her full-time yeah. job. And it's interesting to me now as we are revising our opinion of Wilson and kind of taking down that legacy, how much of the myth was of her making. This, this notion of the visionary of global peace was very much what Edith was trying to create as his legacy in the years after his death. And she showed up at everything. She was at every statue unveiling, everything anyone named after him, she was there to make sure that his story was told in the way she wanted it to be told. Did she stay involved in democratic elective politics? Not much. She uh, went to the 1928 Democratic Convention. She supported Al Smith, even though he was Catholic, which might be a sign that she mellowed a little bit in her prejudices. Um, she voted. She was honorary chair of the Women's National Democratic Club, but she was not uh, particularly active politically. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that she <clears throat> created a first lady sorority. Yes. So it invited both parties to come to, to the To come to her, her house. house for tea, because she was here in town. Which, you know, no presidential family had stayed here in Washington, and since the Obamas have, but, um, and she understood that that kind of made her the grand dame of this sorority. And so all incoming first ladies, regardless of party, were in, invited to tea. And it wasn't for her to sort of lure it over them. It was for her to say like, I know the job's weird. I'm here if you need some help and advice. So she, how old was she when she died? 89. And it was actually a momentous day that she died. Yes, so um, President Kennedy had taken office. She really liked the Kennedys, not just because they were Democrats. She thought they were young and exciting and fashionable. And uh, President Kennedy had signed legislation that created a Wilson Memorial, which ultimately became the Wilson Center. And so she, just before her death, was there in the White House and got the pen. And then um, the day she died was the day they dedicated the Wilson Bridge over the Potomac River. And she was supposed to be there because she showed up. Um, but that ultimately, and it was, she managed to die on his birthday, December 28th. Which so, is still the main thoroughfare that anyone that's traveling south on I-95 goes across the Woodrow Wilson Right, Bridge. absolutely. All You've these years probably later. been stuck in traffic on it. <laughs> Certainly those of us who live here have. <laughs> so as we, we have about four minutes left, <clears throat> Siena College has done these rankings of first ladies maybe five times over the past two decades. And I went to look at where Edith Wilson fell. And in the two of the five, she was in the top 10. Huh. And in the most recent one, which was a while back, 2014, she came in just a little lower, number 14 among all the 45, 46 first ladies. Where would you put her if you had the chance? I mean, the reason it was so exciting and interesting to tell her story is because she's complicated, right? I mean, she did do this momentous thing, so she did make history in a way that a lot of first ladies didn't, but she shouldn't have, right? No one voted for her. And so I think that her influence on the role is admirable in terms of elevating it, putting the first lady on the international stage. I think taking the reins of the executive branch in 1919 is not admirable. I, I understand in some ways why she did it, but she should not have. And so her legacy is complicated, and that's what makes her interesting, right? She's a real, live, actual human, not just a binary hero or villain. 
How did you decide on the title Untold Power? Well, there's a lot of layers to that title, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, there's that expression that she wields untold power, but also her story really is untold, or at least undertold, or told from a perspective that does not really give you the full sense of who she was and why she did what she did. The full title is Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. It's author, biographer Rebecca Boggs Roberts. Thank you very much for being here with, for the last hour with us. Thank appreciate, you so much for having me. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 